welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Sheila Hetty reads from Stefan Zweig's memoir, The World of Yesterday. To learn more from Hetty about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Sheila Hetty. I will be reading a chapter from Stefan Zweig's memoir, The World of Yesterday, which he wrote between 1934 and 1941. It is one of the most fascinating and vivid descriptions I've ever read, not only of what Victorian manners and morals were like, but what it feels like to have lived through history, in particular, the great political and social upheavals that occurred between his birth in Vienna in 1881 and his death in 1942. He gave his publisher the typewritten manuscript of this memoir the day before he and his wife died by suicide. Zweig grew up in a prosperous Jewish family, and this is the world he is writing about. I found in these pages one of the greatest and most fascinating and sensitive eyewitness accounts of history I have ever read. I love the details. I love the feeling that I am seeing the truth about another world with such intimacy. This chapter has stayed with me since I first encountered it years ago. I am about the age he was when he wrote it, and though I don't think the changes I have witnessed have been as dramatic, I feel I know what it's like to remember a lost world and to be able to set now against then, and to weigh all of it up. I have edited this chapter so that my reading doesn't go on too long. Here is Stefan Zweig. During those eight years at grammar school, one very personal fact affected us all. Starting as children of ten, we gradually became sexually mature young people of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Nature began to assert its rights. These days, the awakening of puberty seems to be an entirely private matter to be dealt with for themselves by all young people as they grow up, and it does not at first glance appear at all suitable for public discussion. For our generation, however, the crisis of puberty reached beyond its own real sphere. At the same time, it brought an awakening in another sense. It taught us to look more critically for the first time at the world of the society in which we had grown up and its conventions and it did not take us long to discover that all those authorities whom we had so far trusted, school, the family, public morality, were remarkably insincere on one point, the subject of sexuality. Worse than that, they wanted us too to dissimulate and cover up anything we did in that respect. Perhaps there has never been such a total transformation in any area of public life within a single human generation as here, in the relationship between the sexes, and it was brought about by a whole series of factors— the emancipation of women, Freudian psychoanalysis, cultivation of physical fitness through sport, the way in which the young have claimed independence. If we try to pin down the difference between the bourgeois morality of the 19th century, which was essentially Victorian, and the more liberal, uninhibited attitudes of the present, we come closest perhaps to the heart of the matter by saying that in the 19th century, the question of sexuality was anxiously avoided because of a sense of inner insecurity. Perhaps sexuality could not be eradicated from the polite world, but at least it should not be visible. By tacit agreement, therefore, the whole difficult complex of problems was not to be mentioned in public, at school, or at home, and everything that could remind anyone of its existence was to be suppressed. We, who have known since Freud that those who try to suppress natural instincts from the conscious mind are not eradicating them, but only, and dangerously, shifting them into the unconscious— find it easy to smile at the ignorance of that naive policy of keeping mum. But the entire 19th century suffered from the delusion that all conflicts could be resolved by reason, and the more you hid your natural instincts, the more you tempered your anarchic forces, 
so that if young people were not enlightened about the existence of their own sexuality, they would forget it. In this deluded belief that you could moderate something by ignoring it, all the authorities agreed on a joint boycott imposed by means of hermetic silence. The churches offering pastoral care, schools, salons in the law courts, books and newspapers, fashion and custom, all on principle avoided any mention of the matter. And to its discredit, even science, which should have taken on the task of confronting all problems directly. Science capitulated on the pretext that it was beneath its dignity to study such indecent subjects. Least of all might any writer of novels venture to give an honest account of such subjects, because that branch of literature was concerned only with the aesthetically beautiful. So we are faced with the strange fact that young people today, wanting to know how their counterparts of the last couple of generations made their way through life, can find accounts of nothing but sublimated, toned-down love affairs, because the pressures of that time inhibited that whole generation in its freedom of expression. And nothing more clearly illustrates the almost hysterical oversensitivity of our forebears' moral sense and the atmosphere in which they lived, unimaginable today, than the fact that even this literary restraint was not enough. Can anyone now understand how such a down-to-earth novel as Madame Bovary could be banned by a French court on the grounds of indecency? Or how Zola's novels, in my own youth, could be considered pornographic? Or so well-balanced a writer of neoclassical epic works as Thomas Hardy could arouse indignation in England and America? Reserved as they were on the subject, these books had given away too much of the truth. But we grew up in this unhealthy, musty air, drenched with sultry perfumes, the dishonest and psychologically unrealistic morality of covering up sexuality and keeping it quiet weighed down on us in our youth. And as, thanks to the solidarity maintained in this policy of hushing things up, there were no proper accounts available in literature and cultural history, it may not be easy for my readers to reconstruct what had actually happened, incredible as it might seem. However, there is one good point of reference. We need only to look at fashion because the fashions of a period, visibly expressing its tastes, betrays its morality. It can be no coincidence that, as I write now in 1940, the entire audience in every town and village all over Europe or America bursts into wholehearted merriment when society men and women of 1900 appear on the cinema screen in the costumes of the time. The most naive of us today will smile at those strange figures of the past, seeing them as caricatures, idiots decked out in unnatural, uncomfortable, unhygienic, and impractical clothing. Even we, who saw our mothers, aunts, and girlfriends wearing those absurd gowns, and thought them equally ridiculous when we were boys, feel it is like a strange dream for a whole generation to have submitted to such stupid costumes without protest. The men's fashions of the time, high stiff collars, one of them known as the patricide, so stiff that they ruled out any ease of movement, the black frock coats with their flowing tails, top hats resembling chimney pipes, also provoke laughter. But most ridiculous of all is a lady of the past in her dress, difficult to put on and hard to wear, every detail of it doing violence to her nature. Her body is cut in two at a wasp waist, obtained by a whalebone corset. Her skirts billow out in an enormous bell. Her throat is enclosed right up to the chin. Her feet covered to the toes. Her hair piled into countless little curls and rolls and braids, worn under a majestically swaying monster of a hat. Her hands carefully gloved even in the hottest summer. This creature, long ago consigned to history, gives the impression of pitiable helplessness, despite the perfume wafting around her the jewelry weighing her down, and all the costly lace, frills, and trimmings. You see at first glance that once inside such garments, and invulnerable as a knight in his armor, a woman was no longer free, could not move fast and gracefully. But every movement, every gesture, and indeed her whole bearing in such a costume, was bound to be artificial and literally unnatural. 
but there was a secret sense in this nonsense. A woman's real figure was to be so entirely enclosed by all this manipulation that even at the wedding breakfast, her bridegroom had not the faintest idea whether his future companion for life was straight or crooked, plump or thin, had short legs or long legs. That moral age thought it perfectly permissible to add artificial reinforcements to the hair, the bosom, and other parts of the body for the purposes of deception and to conform to the general ideal of female beauty. The more a woman was expected to look like a lady, the less of her natural shape might be shown. In reality, the guiding principle behind this fashion was only to obey the general moral tendency of the time, which was chiefly concerned with concealment and covering up. But that wise morality quite forgot that when you bar the door to the devil, he usually forces his way in down the chimney or through a back entrance. What strikes our uninhibited gaze today about those costumes, garments so desperately trying to cover every inch of bare skin and hide the natural figure, is not their moral propriety, but its opposite— the way that those fashions, provocative to the point of embarrassment, emphasize the polarity of the sexes. While the modern young man and young woman, both of them tall and slim, both beardless and short-haired, conform to each other in easy comradeship even in their outward appearance, in that earlier epoch the sexes distanced themselves from each other as far as possible. The men sported long beards, or at least twirled the ends of a mighty mustache, a clearly recognizable sign of their masculinity, while a woman's breasts, essentially feminine and sexual attributes, were made ostentatiously visible by her corset. The extreme emphasis on difference between the so-called stronger sex and the weaker sex was also evident in the attitudes expected of them. A man was supposed to be forthright, chivalrous, and aggressive. A woman shy, timid, and defensive. They were not equals, but hunter and prey. This unnatural tension separating them in their outward behavior was bound to heighten the inner tension between the two poles, the factor of eroticism. And so, thanks to its technique, which knew nothing of psychology— of concealing sexuality and hushing it up, the society of the time achieved exactly the opposite. In its constant prudish anxiety, it was always sniffing out immorality in all aspects of life, literature, art, and fashion, with a view to preventing any stimulation, with the result that it was in fact forced to keep dwelling on the immoral. As it was always studying what might be unsuitable, it found itself constantly on the alert. To the world of that time, decency always appeared to be in deadly danger from every gesture, every word. Perhaps we can understand how it still seemed criminal at that time for a woman to wear any form of trousers for games or sports. But how can we explain the hysterical prudery that made it improper for a lady even to utter the word trousers? And it was terribly improper for a well-brought-up woman to cross one foot over the other in public because she might reveal a glimpse of her ankles under the hem of her dress. Today, 40 years on, all that seems like a fairy tale or a humorous exaggeration. But this fear of the physical and natural really did permeate society, from the upper classes down, with the force of a true neurosis. The fact was that nothing increased or heightened our curiosity so much as this clumsy technique of concealment, and in all classes of society, this suppression of sexuality led to the stealthy overstimulation of young people, and it was expressed in a childish, inexpert way. There was hardly a fence or a remote shed that was not scrawled with indecent words and graffiti, hardly a swimming pool where the wooden partition marking off the ladies' pool was not full of so-called knotholes through which a peeping tom might look. Whole industries flourished in secret, industries that have now disappeared because morals and manners are more natural. In particular, the trade and nude photographs offered for sale under the counter in bars to adolescent boys. What was suppressed found outlets everywhere, found ways around obstacles, ways out of difficulties. So ultimately, the generation that was prudishly denied any sexual enlightenment, any form of easy social encounter with the opposite sex, was a thousand times more erotically obsessed than young people today, who have so much more freedom and love. To sum up, 
the social pressure put on us as young people, instead of improving our morals, merely made us embittered and distrustful of those in authority. From the first day of our sexual awakening, we instinctively felt that this dishonest morality, with its silence and concealment, wanted to take from us something that was rightfully ours in our youth, and was sacrificing our desire for honesty to a convention that had long ago ceased to have any real meaning. Before Freud, it was an accepted axiom that a woman had no physical desires until they were aroused in her by a man, although, of course, that was officially permitted only in marriage. However, as the era of Vienna in particular was full of dangerous, infectious eroticism, even in that age of morality, a girl of good family had to live in an entirely sterilized atmosphere from her birth to the day when she went to the bridal altar. Young girls were not left alone for a moment, for their own protection. They were taken to school, then collected again. Every book they read was checked, and above all, young girls were kept constantly occupied in case they indulged in any dangerous ideas. They had to practice the piano, do some singing and dancing. They had to learn foreign languages and the history of art and literature. They were educated, indeed overeducated. But while the idea was to make them as educated and socially well brought up as possible, at the same time, great care was taken to leave them ignorant of all natural things in a way unimaginable to us today. A young girl of good family was not allowed to have any idea of how the male body was formed. She must not know how children came into the world, for since she was an angel, she was not just to remain physically untouched, she must also enter marriage entirely pure in mind. I cannot deny that, on the other hand, this ignorance lent young girls of the time a mysterious charm. Unfledged as they were, they guessed that besides and beyond their own world, there was another of which they knew nothing, were not allowed to know anything, and that made them curious, full of longing, effusive, attractively confused. If you greeted them in the street, they would blush. Do any young girls still blush? Alone with each other, they would giggle and whisper and laugh all the time, as if they were slightly tipsy. Full of expectation of the unknown that was never disclosed to them, they entertained romantic dreams of life, but at the same time were ashamed to think of anyone finding out how much their bodies physically craved a kind of affection of which they had no very clear notion. A sort of slight confusion always animated their conduct. They walked differently from the girls of today, whose bodies are made fit through sport, who mingle with young men easily and without embarrassment as their equals. Even a thousand paces away in our time, you could tell the difference between a young girl and a woman who had had a physical relationship with a man, simply by the way she walked and held herself. Young girls were more girlish than the girls of today, less like women, resembling the exotically tender hothouse plants that are raised in the artificially overheated atmosphere of a glasshouse. But that was how the society of the time liked its young girls, innocent and ignorant, well brought up and knowing nothing, curious and bashful, uncertain and impractical, destined by an education remote from real life to be formed and guided in marriage by a husband without any will of their own. If bourgeois convention of the time desperately tried to maintain the fiction that a woman of the best circles had no sexuality and must not have any until she was married, then it was still obliged to admit that such instincts really were present in a young man. And so society limited itself to the modest hope that they could take their unworthy pleasures extramurally outside the sanctified precincts of good manners. The present generation has little idea of the vast extent of prostitution in Europe before the world wars. While today prostitutes are seen in big cities as seldom as horses in the streets, at the time the pavements were so crowded with women of easy virtue that it was harder to avoid them than to find them. In addition, there were all the closed houses or brothels, the night spots, cabarets and dance halls with their female dancers and singers, the bars with their hostesses. Feminine wares were openly offered for sale at such places, 
in every price range and at every time of day, and it really cost a man as little time and trouble to hire a woman for a quarter of an hour, an hour, or a night, as to buy a packet of cigarettes or a newspaper. Nothing seems to me better evidence of the greater and more natural honesty of life and love today than the fact that these days it is possible, and almost taken for granted, for young men to do without this once indispensable institution, and prostitution has been partly eliminated, but not by the efforts of the police or the law. Decreasing demand for this tragic product of pseudo-morality has reduced it to a small remnant. Dressed in a tawdry elegance which they had gone to great pains to purchase, prostitutes paraded around the streets day and night until well into the hours of the dawn, even in freezing and wet weather, constantly forcing their weary and badly painted faces into an enticing smile for every passerby. All the big cities today look to me more beautiful and humane places now that these crowds of hungry, unhappy women no longer populate the streets, offering pleasure for sale without any expectation of pleasure themselves, and in their endless wanderings from place to place, all finally going the same inevitable way, to the hospital. So we must not be led by the sentimental novels and novellas of the period. It was not a good time for the young, when young girls were placed in airtight compartments under the control of their families, sealed off from life, their physical and intellectual development stunted, and when young men in turn were forced into secrecy and underhand behavior, all in support of a morality that at heart no one believed in or obeyed. Straightforward, honest relationships, exactly what ought to have been bringing happiness and delight to these young people by the laws of nature, were granted to only very few. And any man of that generation trying to be honest in recollecting his very first encounters with women will find few episodes on which he can really look back with unclouded pleasure. For apart from the social constraints always urging young men to be cautious and preserve secrecy, there was another element at the time to cast a shadow on their minds, even at the most intimate moments, the fear of infection. Here again, the young people of the time were at a particular disadvantage compared to those of today, for it must not be forgotten that 40 years ago sexual diseases were a hundred times more prevalent than they are now, and above all a hundred times more dangerous and terrible in their effects, because clinical practice did not yet know how to deal with them. There was still no scientific possibility of curing them as quickly and radically as today, when they are little more than a passing episode. Weeks may pass now at the teaching hospitals of small and medium-sized universities without a professor's being able to show his students a new case of syphilis. While statistics of that time showed that in the army and in big cities, at least one or two in every ten young men had already contracted an infection. Young people at the time were constantly warned of the danger. Walking through the streets of Vienna, you could read a plate on every sixth or seventh building proclaiming that a specialist in skin and venereal diseases practiced there. And to the fear of infection was added horror at the repellent, degrading nature of treatment at the time. Again, today's world knows nothing of that. The entire body of a man infected with syphilis was subjected to weeks and weeks of treatment by rubbing with quicksilver, which made the teeth fall out and caused other kinds of damage to the patient's health. The unfortunate victim of a bad attack felt not only mentally but also physically soiled. And even after such a terrible cure, he could never for the rest of his life be sure that the malicious virus might not wake from its dormancy at any moment, paralyzing him from the spinal marrow outwards and softening the brain inside his skull. No wonder that at the time many young men diagnosed with the disease immediately reached for a revolver. If I try to remember truthfully... I know hardly one of the comrades of my adolescent years who did not at some time look pale and distracted, one because he was sick or feared he would fall sick, another because he was being blackmailed over an abortion, a third because he lacked the money to take a course of treatment without his family's knowledge, a fourth because he didn't know how to pay the alimony for a child claimed by a waitress to be his, 
a fifth because his wallet had been stolen in a brothel and he dared not go to the police. So youth in that pseudo-moral age was much more dramatic and, on the other hand, unclean, much more exciting and at the same time oppressive than the novels and plays of the court writers describe it. All this has to be emphasized in an honest portrait of the time, because in talking to younger friends of the post-war generation, I often find it very hard to convince them that our young days were definitely not to be preferred to theirs. Certainly, we had more freedom as citizens of the state than the present generation, who are obliged to do military service or labor service, or in many countries to embrace a mass ideology, and are indeed generally at the mercy of the arbitrary stupidity of international politics. We could devote ourselves undisturbed to our artistic and intellectual inclinations. We could pursue our private lives in a more individual and personal way. We were able to live in a more cosmopolitan manner. The whole world was open to us. We could travel anywhere we liked without passes and permits. No one interrogated us about our beliefs, our origins, our race, or religion. We certainly did, I do not deny it, have immeasurably more individual freedom. And we did not just welcome that, we made use of it. But as Friedrich Hebel once nicely put it, sometimes we have no wine, sometimes we have no goblet. Both are seldom granted to one in the same generation. If morality allows a man freedom, the state tries to remold him. If the state allows him freedom, morality will try to impose itself. We knew more of the world then and knew it better, but the young today live their own youthful years more fully and are more aware of what they experience. Today, when I see young people coming out of their schools and colleges with heads held high, with bright, cheerful faces, when I see boys and girls together in free and easy companionship, competing with each other in studies, sport and games without any false shame or bashfulness, racing over the snow on skis, rivaling each other in the swimming pool with the freedom known in the ancient world, driving over the countryside together in motor cars, engaging in all aspects of a healthy, untroubled life like brothers and sisters, without any internal or external pressure on them. I always feel as if not forty, but a thousand years lay between them and those of us who had to look for any experience of giving and taking love in a hole and corner way in the shadows. I see genuinely happy expressions on their faces. What a great revolution in morality has taken place to the benefit of the young. How much freedom in life and love they have regained, and how much better they thrive both physically and mentally on this healthy new freedom. Women look more beautiful to me now that they are at liberty to display their figures, their gait is more upright, their eyes brighter, their conversation less stilted. What a different kind of confidence this new youth has acquired. They are not called upon by anyone else to account for what they do or do not do. They answer only to themselves and their own sense of responsibility, which has wrested control over them from mothers and fathers and aunts and teachers, and long ago threw off the inhibition, intimidation, and tension that weighed down on their own development." They no longer know the devious secrecy we had to resort to to get the forbidden pleasures that they now correctly feel are their right. They happily enjoy their youth with the verve, freshness, and lightness of heart and freedom from anxiety proper to their age. But the best of that happiness, it seems to me, is that they do not have to lie to others, while they can be honest with themselves and their natural feelings and desires. It is possible that the carefree way in which young people go through life today means they lack something of our own veneration for intellectual subjects when we were young. It may be that through the easy give and take that is accepted now, they lose an aspect of love that seemed to us particularly valuable and intriguing. They lose a certain reticence caused by shame and timidity, and certain especially tender moments. Perhaps they do not even have any idea of how the awe of what is banned and forbidden mysteriously enhances one's enjoyment of it. 
But all this seems to me a minor drawback by comparison with a saving grace. The fact that young people today are free from fear and oppression and enjoy in full what was forbidden us at their age, a sense of frank self-confidence. Nine Two Wise Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org slash help now to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.